HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Oya, a contemporary Japanese restaurant. For more information, visit oyarestaurantboston.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep, deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is John McCarthy, who is a former lawyer who trained himself at the legendary restaurant WD50 to become a chef, and now the chef owner of the new American restaurant, the Crimson Sparrow in Hudson Valley. And you can find strong Japanese influence on his menu at Crimson Sparrow. So we'll discover how he developed his interest in Japanese flavors and how his life has changed from a veteran lawyer to a successful chef. So hello, John. Welcome to the show. Akiko-san, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So um, first, um, how did you get into uh, cooking? Well, uh, I, took a, I took a wrong turn at some point and became a lawyer for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I was really interested in cooking as uh, a youth, a small child, a, a teenager. Um, I lived overseas for a while, and uh, uh, you know, really took to uh, some of the flavors and the way that um, things were prepared. And when I came back to the United States, I uh, worked in several restaurants, uh, you know, doing what teenagers do, mm-hmm. uh, late teenagers do. Okay. And uh, wanted to wanted to pursue cooking, but. Uh, it just wasn't in the cards at the time. Okay. So it sounds like it's a very quick version of what, what happened. So let's go. You had, a, at the age of 14, you moved to Korea for your father's business. Correct. Right? And uh, spent almost three, four years there. Correct. Right? And uh, how was your life in Korea? 
You're from Maryland, and it must be a little different. <laughs> Bel Air, Maryland, and Hartford County to Seoul, Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it took a little longer to get there then, but uh, yeah, we lived there for three, three and a half years. Um, mm-hmm. It was an amazing experience, I think, for anyone uh, who's ever traveled um, and been fortunate enough to travel, then fortunate enough to live overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, living within a different culture uh, is really, uh, the immersion is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, at that time, 14, 15 years old, uh, it makes such an impression, mm-hmm. uh, a lasting impression. Did you have any culture shock? Uh, I, I'm not sure at that time I knew what it was. Um, but <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I mm. didn't. Hey. I, I, picked up, uh, I picked up eating Korean food and drinking soju fairly quickly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't tell your parents. <laughs> no, they knew. Okay. And, uh, but how was the food? Because, you know, it's completely different, spicy. It is. Uh, Korean food is, is uh, much more uh, spicy. Uh, there's a lot more uh, heat in, in, in the cuisine. Uh, much more meat than I think um, people realize. Uh, an incredible uh, quality of meat, mm. but um, it's very uh, uh, barbecue-centric, mm. uh, which is really a great, fun experience. Mm. Okay. And uh, did you get to taste uh, many other Asian flavors in Korea? Yeah, while we were there, we were able to travel... Uh, fortunate enough to travel throughout Asia, uh, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, Japan. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and, uh, um, you know, Philippines. It was an incredible experience. Uh, you know, at the time, maybe when you're 14 or 15, you don't appreciate 16, you don't appreciate what you've got. Uh, looking back now, it's probably one of the greatest experiences of my life. Mm, okay. And uh, so what was your first and Japanese food experience. <laughs> I think uh, we talked about this. I, I think growing up, uh, you know, in the 1970s, it was probably uh, everyone's experience in the 70s okay. uh, of eating at a, a local, you know, quote unquote Japanese restaurant uh, mm-hmm. in the suburbs of Baltimore. Uh, but uh, you know, you get an appreciation when you live overseas and you're you're exposed to it directly. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different experience. Uh, it's hard to go back sometimes. Right. <laughs> 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 okay. And uh, so you came back to the U.S. and uh, became a lawyer and uh, spent 20 years being a lawyer, right? That's, so yeah, a little less than 20 years. Okay. Yeah. And what kind of practice did you have? Uh, I was a civil litigator. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my uh, own practice in Manhattan for close to nine years. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I had worked for several law firms uh, in Tennessee and in New York. Um, <clears throat> also clerked for a... Uh, United States, United States Courts of Appeals judge uh, in, in uh, Delaware uh, with the Third Circuit. Um, so, you know, I had, I, I think I'd done very well as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just didn't like being a lawyer. Okay. Yeah. Right. So what was the decision, you know, what kind of decision you made? It's like a new, new career and it happened to be cooking and you want, always wanted to be a cook. I always wanted to be a cook. I had, had my wife, fortunately, uh, Diana. Uh, is very supportive and in fact I think sometimes to make these choices you need to be pushed and we happened to be walking by uh, the French Culinary Institute which is now the I think the International Culinary Center mm. in Soho and um, she said you should go here wow. <laughs> and uh, not long after that I think I was enrolled uh, mm. and did it at night trying at the same time to withdraw myself from the legal world wow. and uh, found myself um, Really uh, meeting some really great, incredible people uh, who actually led me to where I am today, including Dave Arnold, 
um, and uh, Nils Norin mm-hmm. and uh, Wiley Dufresne. Okay. So, um, the first of all, so what's special about cooking for you? Uh, as compared to lawyering, there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no that. comparison. Um, well, I think it, it, with anything that you undertake in life, if you are uh, passionate about it and enjoy it, mm. uh, it's not really work. Uh, so, you know, getting up in the morning and knowing that I'm going to be cooking in a kitchen uh, in a restaurant with, uh, you know, my partner now, uh, Ryan Tate, um, and we've got a great staff. I mean, just being there with people who share that energy uh, is such a much more positive life uh, than I would say uh, dealing with other folks' problems as mm, a lawyer. Right. Um, so the, the, any stress placed on me is my own, um, and uh, you know you can deal with that uh, mm. hopefully. Okay, right. And then let's go back to your people, people we know. So you mentioned Dave Arnold, who happened to have a host, one of the hosts at the Heritage too, and uh, he's uh, the director of the Culinary Technology Department at the International Culinary Center. So, and I heard uh, he invited you to uh, suggested you train uh, stars at the WD Fifty. That's correct. Okay, so because you're so good, and then. Yeah, I guess I don't. I'm not sure exactly why. I think Dave, uh, Dave, and I uh, kind of uh, met and and hooked up. It was actually through um, a professor at the school mm. uh, named Jason Patanovich, who knew Dave Arnold and connected us and put us together. Mm. Um, and once we were together, uh, suggested that uh, uh, I try to stage at WD50, which I did for uh, my entire time at FCI. Okay. And then eventually went to work full time for. Uh, uh, Chef Wiley. Mm. Okay, I asked that question because, you know, WD-50, uh, which is unfortunately not closed, but it's legendary and known for innovative innovative techniques and including molecular gastronomy. So I thought, Dave thought you'd be uh, the right fit for the restaurant. Yeah, I, 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 I assume maybe I haven't. I've never really asked him why he did it, but uh, we were, I was very interested in that type of cuisine, modern cuisine. Mm. Um, the use of hydrocolloids and and the development of, of cuisine, cuisine uh, techniques, uh, using those in innovative ways to, to uh, cook food, mm. uh, prepare food, and uh, I really took a, a, a keen interest to it. Um, it, it. You know, looking back, it was so many years ago. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I think that's how we we connected, and then uh, he suggested and, and uh, made made the introduction. Yeah. Okay. And what what did you learn at Thirty Day Fifty? You don't have enough time on your program. <laughs> uh, it, it was just an incredible experience. I, I made some uh, very, very uh, good friends out of it. Um, my friend John Bignelli, uh, who's in Brooklyn here, um, you know, uh, JJ Basil. I mean, there's there's just so many people that came out of that relationship-wise. But in terms of the cuisine, uh, Chef Wiley, uh, really, I think people don't have uh, maybe – the full appreciation of how much he was uh, and is uh, a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, someone who was excited about what he was doing, learning as he went along and then trying to get us to learn uh, what he knew and, and progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an incredibly uh, forward-leaning kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, what he does next. I really am. Right. Yeah, so he came over and we had a show together and he has a plan to open our new restaurant. I, I understand that. Yeah. Right, so, okay. Um, so in 2010, you and your wife, Diana, bought a house in Hudson Valley 
and you opened uh, the Crimson Sparrow. So did you plan to open the restaurant in Hudson Valley from the beginning? Not really. Uh, we bought a house in Claverick, New York, which is in Columbia County. Mm. Um, it's about seven or eight miles from Hudson. Okay. And during the course of, of visiting there, uh, we thought, well, wouldn't it be great to own a restaurant there? I was becoming uh, less and less um, interested in the law and more focused on cooking. Mm. So it seemed to be a natural progression. So we were able to, to find the Crimson Sparrow uh, in the building. In I think we closed on the building in October 2012, uh, 2011, and opened it June 20th, 2012. Mm. Okay. So it's, we're in our fourth year. Mm. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> And I heard that uh, Hudson Valley is now called uh, Williamsburg North because now there are many cool shops and restaurants like yours. So um, what is the community like? Are there many sophisticated diners, curious diners? Uh, in Hudson, uh, Hudson has often been, I think, referred to in the, in the Williamsburg North. Uh, I, I, I assume it's because of the fact that Hudson holds such... Uh, um, a, a creative hold in that area. Mm. Uh, there are an incredible number of artists, um, musicians, um, writers, talented people. Uh, it's really uh, become sort of the art-centric spot within the Hudson Valley from at least my perspective. Obviously, there are other great places in the Hudson Valley, Storm King, Down a Beacon, DIA, mm. um, those kinds of things. But Hudson, uh, in its in its own uh, right, I think, is a, an incredibly vibrant and creative place mm, right um there's uh, places like uh, fish and game by zach pelagio of uh, formerly party crab and barbecue and uh the other places i heard are prairie uh, whale mm. and 64 uh, rosary and cafe and those like is it are they all new those are a bit farther south of me oh, okay um, they i believe the prairie whale is in well actually prairie whale i think is in the berkshires um and then Fish and Game is only a couple of blocks. In fact, I saw uh, Zach the other night. Mm. And, uh, um, but yeah, it's, uh, they're in, every day uh, we hear about new people coming to Hudson. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a small town. It's 7,000 people. Right. Uh, but the number of people that are gravitating towards it, um, you know, Rivertown um, uh, Lodge is just opened up across the street from us. Um, there's there's uh, folks who are out of the city as well, mm. and they've opened a beautiful 27-room uh, boutique motel. Uh, so we're hearing about new restaurants, hearing about new projects. So uh, it, it's not it's not a situation where it remains the same. It's constantly changing. Mm, right. So, but relatively speaking, it's like a new community. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, so it's probably you hit the right time. And it's uh, the only city... Or town uh, I, that I can think of on the Hudson Line mm. for, of Amtrak, where the stop is dead center in the town. Mm. So you don't need a car. You can uh, two oh. hours from Penn Station to Hudson, and I'm a seven block walk from there. Mm. Okay, yeah, and I just I wanted to mention your interesting lifestyle. So you have a restaurant, and you come down to the city once a week. I do. Right. So how does that work out? Uh, it, uh, you try to pack a lot of drinking and eating into a 36-hour period when you're in the city, and then you go back up, <laughs> upstate and work. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, it works out really well. It's the best of both, both worlds, obviously. Mm. Um, I get out of the city. I get to do what I love. I come back, um, do some amazing things in the city, eat at great restaurants, mm. uh, catch up with folks, and uh, 
it's it's fantastic. Okay, well, I'm curious. Uh, you know, Japanese food wise, the community in Hudson, um, it, there may be less Japanese restaurants in zero. <laughs> There's one sushi restaurant, I think, uh, but in terms of of Japanese restaurants, um, I'm I'm hard pressed right now to think of one uh, mm. within twenty five thirty miles, maybe fifty miles. Mm. Okay, so, so I come back to the city. For example, tonight I'm going to eat at uh, uh, Matsui. Uh, oh, tempura, tempura place. Yeah. Right, so, that's uh, a serious. It's serious. Tempura place. <laughs> it looks serious. Mm-hmm. The check's going to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> Between the tempura and the sake and the shochu, yeah, it's going to be a serious pill. Mm. Well, that's uh, the price of the history, maybe. Ginza. <laughs> right. Um, well, but you know, we're going to talk about your about your restaurants more and in details. But uh, who are your customers? I would say seventy percent of our customers are folks from uh, New York City mm-hmm. uh, or Albany, uh, Western Massachusetts, Berkshires. Um, the remaining thirty percent are folks that uh, are either local, just moved there, uh, uh, relocated, um, or. Uh, People who are really driving up from other communities within the Hudson Valley, say Rhinebeck or uh, Beacon, mm. uh, who are interested in what else is going on in the Hudson Valley. Uh, it's you know you can cover the Hudson Valley when you get out of the city in basically an hour and a half. Mm. You know, we're sort of the the northern tip and spear of of what I know to be the Hudson Valley. But obviously, if you go beyond and further afield of us. Mm. Um, you know, there's Saratoga and, and, and uh, places another hour, hour and a half uh, mm. north of us that are really beautiful um, and actually have some really uh, amazing restaurants as well. Mm. But I'm, I'm kind of surprised because, you know, everyone's talking about Japanese food ramen in the city, but then just step away, like two hours, only two hours, mm-hmm. then there's a community, a lot to discover about Japanese cuisine. Absolutely. Right. Okay. And we're trying to bring as much of it as we can mm-hmm. uh, to Hudson. All right. So um, now let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about how John applies Japanese flavors to his Western style dishes. So please stay with us. program is brought to you by Oya, a contemporary Japanese restaurant. Chef Tim and Nancy Cushman opened Oya, a contemporary Japanese restaurant, in March 2007. Since opening, the restaurant has received numerous accolades, including Tim being named Best Chef Northeast by the James Beard Foundation in 2012. Oya was named by the New York Times food critic Frank Bruni as the number one new restaurant in the United States in 2008. Oya is a contemporary Japanese restaurant located in an almost 100-year-old fire station in the historic Leather District of Boston. The menu is izakaya-style, which consists of a variety of small plates and is designed to encourage exploring a variety of flavors throughout the meal. The extensive menu includes creative nigiri-style sushi and sashimi, as well as a variety of cook dishes like luxurious wagyu beef, kurubuta pork, and poulet rouge chicken. 
A chef's tasting menu, or omakase, is offered and consists of 17-plus courses. A grand tasting menu is also offered, consisting of 20-plus courses, most of which are designed exclusively for that menu. An extensive list of premium sakes, shochus, and Japanese whiskeys are served. For more information, visit oyarestaurantboston.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is a former lawyer and a chef owner of New American restaurant, the Crimson Sparrow in Hudson Valley. So, um, you opened the Crimson, the Crimson Sparrow in June 2012. Why did you name it uh, the Crimson Sparrow? Uh, I'm, I'm asked that question at least once a week. And, and <laughs> Uh, for a while there, we would try to give a different answer every time to, to lend an air of mystery to it, like, <laughs> like, like the number 33 on the back of a rolling rock bottle. Mm. Um, but uh, no, it was more of just uh, a couple of guys sitting on a porch drinking whiskey, uh, looking at birds, thinking of names and colors and birds and names and colors. And yeah, you get to a point where, okay, the Crimson Sparrow sounds pretty cool. Okay. <laughs> <So> that, <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no real uh, you know, deep deep meaning behind it really there isn't <laughs> mm, interesting because uh you know sparrows are really a lot very common bird in japan i mean i think more than here even suzume yeah suzume so yeah i thought it was something really and romantic crimson sparrow no no <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with something I'll, I'll, by the next program i will have a, an interesting story for <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, hundred twenty words description. <laughs> right. Okay, and uh, your menu is new American and cooked with Asian flavors uh, using French techniques. So, could you give us some uh, examples of your dishes that represent how you apply Japanese flavors to French style dishes? Sure. What we try to do with the restaurant is, is uh, um, you know, there's two, uh, I guess, categories of, of Japanese um, tasting. Would one would be omakase. Uh, associated with sushi, and the other would be a kaiseki, mm-hmm. uh, which incorporates uh, you know meat, rice, fish, uh, grilled items, seasonal items. So what we try to do is offer sort of a uh, uh, an Americanized or modern take on a kaiseki meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're trying to do is is give the diner the full experience of providing a local product. Mm-hmm. Um, local vegetables. We're surrounded by farms. Mm-hmm. You have only tasting menu. We have uh, two two levels of tasting menu, but then we also do a bar menu mm-hmm. uh, that includes at any given time eight to twelve items mm-hmm. uh, that can be either shared or, you know, if the diner wishes, they could put together their own uh, sort of tasting menu at the bar if they wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of the bar menus are priced between I think eight and fourteen dollars mm. uh, then the tasting menus are um, at two different levels right. uh, eight courses ten courses and then the the, the, uh, the higher end is 13 or 14 courses so mm. um, it's a it's a full two hour plus experience um, and what we're trying to do is is use um, you know Japanese ingredients and uh, apply them to dishes that incorporate a lot of local uh, uh, products mm. uh, you know one of our favorite, uh, I think, is the bed, bedrock of, of Japanese uh, washoku, mm-hmm. and is, is dashi. Mm-hmm. I love making dashi. I don't know why. Uh, I just really like making dashi. Mm-hmm. But the introduction of dashi into various um, uh, formats and, and uses, whether it be stocks, uh, uh, the basis for soups or sauces or, or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, I think is, is it lends itself to 
um, you know, the application of French techniques and Japanese ingredients. The, right. the so, marriage of the two is very, very fun. Mm, okay. And, uh, so, for example, we just had uh, mm. one of the one dishes I really enjoyed uh, in the last menu was uh, uh, green-lipped abalone mm-hmm. uh, that was simmered in, in dashi uh, on a bed of uh, kanji. Um, with black truffles mm. and then a dashi pour over with dried chrysanthemum. Um, you know, it's it, it's it, the whole melding of those flavors. Uh, you know, it's almost transportive in a mm, way. Right. So let me ask. So your dashi is based um, uh, kombu and bonito. My, my dashi recipe is is ninety nine percent taken from Yoshihiro Murata, mm-hmm. uh, the the you know the godfather of Kyoto cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, owner, chef owner of uh, Kinikinoi. Kinikinoi in and Kyoto. Kinikinoi, uh, right. and, Michelin uh, three stars. Three stars all over the world. Right. Um, yeah, so it's uh, uh, kombu, mm-hmm. uh, bonito, mm-hmm. and water. Right. By the way, well, listeners, uh, uh, Murata-san has a beautiful English uh, Japanese book, although Japanese cuisine book. Yeah, it's called it's, Kaiseki. Right. It's, so. uh, it's, it's an amazing book. Mm, it's beautiful. Right. I haven't eaten there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to call before I went last time, but it was only three months in advance, so mm. I couldn't get a reservation. Well, it's time to plan for this year. Yeah, I think so. Right, resolution. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so it's bonito and uh, um, kombu based. Correct. Right. So for you, I mean, compared to French stock, what's special about you know fish based uh, dashi? Right. So is it widely you know applicable to any kinds of food? I believe dashi is. Um, you know, it, it introduces a, um, a smokiness and... Um, well, smokiness of bonito because it's uh, dried bonito and smoked. Absolutely. Right. Um, so I think, you know, depending on what flavor profiles you're trying to achieve, the use of the dashi uh, as a base mm. uh, allows you to, um, you know, elevate that, that particular sauce or that particular um, broth, uh, what have you, uh, to another place. And... Mm. Uh, if you make the dashi right, according to Chef uh, Morata-san, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a, it's a very easily applicable uh, tool. Uh, but, you know, we use other ingredients as well. Um, you know, we try to get authentic Japanese ingredients when available. It's a little bit more difficult in Hudson. Mm, um, such as? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, well, it comes to New York, and then it's got to get somehow from New York City to Hudson. So. Mm, right. Uh, what kind of ingredients is hard to get? Mm. Well, I, I would say that uh, it, it's made so much easier by, by companies like New York Mutual Trading mm-hmm. Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend there, uh, Aya Kuroda, who uh, really is, uh, she's also trained as a chef, so she's a valuable resource in trying to uh, source you know, anything we're looking for, whether it be um, you know, uh, abalone, whether it be the best bonito, the best kombu. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she also, the New York Mutual also, uh, provides us some of us uh, some of our sakes mm. and shochu. So, um, right, New York Mutual Trading Companies that's one of the biggest Japanese grocery like, uh, items. Yeah, right, sake or food. Amazing. Items. I think it was. Uh, they've been around since 1948. I mm-hmm. think very long. Uh, very long time. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, so you know, going back to dashi, to me, some people I heard some people say some American people find it fishy because it's oceanic. You know, f- flavors. Um, do you have any problem applying it to meat dishes? I do not. 
Hmm. I do not. In fact, I think the marriage of those two is is delicious. Uh, hmm. I don't find it fishy, overly fishy. Um, I tend to get more of the smokiness out of it and the hmm. richness out of it. Um, you know, I I don't know. Mm. I've cooked for my mother a couple of times. I don't know that I don't know that she likes everything I cook, but uh, probably because more often than not, it tastes fishy. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. I can understand. I can relate to to mm. these people uh, objecting to it. Right. I'm curious though. What kind of meat dish do you have uh, with dashi? Uh, I think pork. Uh, we use dashi uh, with pork belly. Uh, as I'm thinking back, uh, fairly regularly. Um, I like those two together. Um, you know, we've used we've used dashi and sauces on dishes that we've had um, using venison. Um, mm, you know, that sounds great. It's it is delicious. It is really good. Mm. But I think it, I think it lends itself. I mean, I, I don't because I don't find it fishy. I think it's the umami laden richness and smokiness of dashi that allows it to be a versatile tool mm. uh, with pretty much anything. Mm. Okay, and uh, I found a couple dishes from a tasting menu on the website, and uh, have little neck clams, squid, sake leaves. What kind of dishes? This is this one is. Wow, um, I think that one was actually uh, it was a, a sake leaves broth mm. uh, that we had taken the clams and smoked the clams, mm. and then uh, with the uh, squid, I think we had pickled the squid. Wow. Um, so it was really uh, if, if you ever if. Anyone's never had sake leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, sake leaves is, is the, I guess, the matter left over after uh, the pressing right. of the sake. Yeah. And you can use it in sauces. You can also use it to cure fish or mm-hmm. pickle or, or, or whatever you uh, want to apply with it. It's really delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, the solid substance after you press uh, the sake. And then I heard it's a full of nutrition such as protein, fiber, vitamin Bs, and zinc. Yep, and it's uh, almost 8% alcohol. Okay. That sounds even better. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't chew it and eat it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, had, you had a matsutake mushroom dashi shrimp. Yeah, this one was uh, just really a, a very straightforward dish of using the matsutake mushroom, which obviously has a, a very uh, a piney, uh, mm. forest floor kind of flavor. Mm. Uh, we made a, a very uh, clean, very clean dashi. Uh, and then um, some some shrimp were added. So I think in many ways that type of dish sort of uh, emblemizes what we're trying to do, which is to uh, make things a bit simpler, pull mm. back a bit. Um, and, you know, it's also, as you and I talked before, it's very risky uh, because if one of those elements is not right, uh, the whole dish feels wrong. But uh, if it's done right, uh, each one of those three you know, marries and sings, and mm. at the end of the day, it's a, it's a, it's a very transportive right. experience for the diner. Mm, it's very much a balance, right? Because I point out like a matsutake, which is, um, I think, it's an equivalent of white truffles. Very expensive mm. in very Japan. Very expensive. And uh, it's seasonal only, in, I think, I would say, September, October. And, you know, like, because it's such a precious item, you know, like uh, caviar, or you know, like anything very expensive, you have only pasta and the shaved truffles. So it's about the balance. It's the same thing, that when same we, approach as you have. When we get the matsutake in, only myself or Ryan are allowed to touch them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we count them every day. Mm, yeah, it's really expensive. They are very expensive, right? But like, very much worth it. Mm, okay. 
And uh, so I heard you change the menu, uh, not just every season, but a lot more frequently. Is that because you are close to local farms in Hassan Valley or you have the mindset of Japanese cuisine, which is uh, which has 12 to even 16 seasons a year? I think in many respects, we're, it, it, both are, are valid reasons for it. Uh, we change our menu, uh, if not one or two elements or dishes, probably every day, every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the whole menu changes over. We try to do it every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, in the, in the summer, obviously, it's, it's a much more active period for the farms, and we're constantly getting uh, new things from the farms. I mean, we, we have three farms located within... You know, ten miles of the restaurant. Mm. You know, Letterbox Farm, Common Hand Farm, Max Morning Star, and uh, Blue Star Farms. Mm. Um, they are all amazing farms, uh, amazing people, um, and their products are great. And so, if you're able to use something that was grown a quarter mile from your restaurant, it's so much the better. Mm. Um, but uh, it's also, I think, maybe I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> 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 constantly changing it uh, doing different things so many things in my head that need to get out if not uh, I feel um, maybe not bored but uh, uh, maybe frustrated that I didn't have them out earlier so mm. we'll see right so new ideas every day every day right yeah this it's kind of this uh, freaking change of menu reminds me of like you know if you go to Kyoto Kaisek mm. restaurants they are really close by to you know by the farms like you are just like you are in Hassan Valley. Right. So you, it's a mandatory, and you have to. You have to. If not, it's it's a waste. <laughs> mm, right. And uh, so you have a special ramen on Wednesday nights? At the <laughs> so we started doing ramen on Wednesdays. Uh, we were looking for a way to uh, uh, fill the middle of the week. Mm. And so we decided to do uh, Suzume ramen, Sparrow mm. ramen, on Wednesdays. It started maybe two months ago, three months ago, and we've sold out pretty much every single one of them. Oh, and, wow. Uh, each week we try to do a different broth, um, a different broth, a different noodle, a different um, application, mm-hmm. uh, not only to just try things out, but also to keep it different for the customers. I mean, you have to keep in mind we're in a small town. Right. So, um, you know, we want people to come back every single week. So we're trying to keep it new and inventive and fresh for them, uh, mm. and the experience fresh every week. Okay. So what kind of dashi do you use for the ramen? Uh, well, we use dashi, but uh, the broths have ranged from, uh, you know, we, last last week we did a chicken broth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, the broths take us anywhere from a day and a half to four days, depending on the type of broth. You know, we've done tonkatsu broths a couple of times, and mm. uh, that's, I think, we do it almost for nine. The, the broth is uh, simmered for almost 96 hours. Okay. Uh, so it takes a while. Mm. And, and people ask, well, why don't you offer three different kinds? Well, I don't, I don't have enough <laughs> stove space or patience <laughs> for three. Uh, but uh, we, we tend to offer one. And uh, you know, we're, we're working on a recipe for a vegetarian one because it's been asked for. So mm. we're going we're gonna to try it. Right. And the topping-wise, do you do a traditional style? or We do traditional style. We also try to mix it up a bit. I mean, the soy egg is always a big hit, mm. um, you know, whether it's watercress, enoki mushrooms, um, you know, the requisite nori and, and uh, naruto maki, mm. the fish cake that right. goes on. But we've also done uh, ramen where we've introduced 
uh, you know, kimchi. We've done this beautiful pork broth and then pureed kimchi into it and added as a tare some gochujang base. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think we changed that a bit because it was cold that weekend. We said, oh, well, let's, we didn't want something spicy this weekend. Aye. So we changed it. And, um, you know, pork belly is uh, usually shows up, mm-hmm. uh, the pork chashu. Um, it, it, it all depends on what we're feeling like doing. So. Mm, okay. So ramen is also available at your restaurant? In only, only on Wednesday okay. from 5.30 to about 7.30, okay. 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Because by then we're usually sold out. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't last long. Okay. And uh, so, you know, we talked about your experience at WD50. So I'm curious how you apply scientific elements to your dishes. Uh do you have a lot of them, or you have subdued I think, application? No, I think it's a subdued application. I mean, we, I mean, I think thanks to to uh, Chef Wiley and others uh, that the, those techniques have been uh, so widely accepted that they're they're really um, commonplace mm-hmm. in, in kitchens. Um, you know, I'm sure. Most kitchens have the same hydrocolloids I have. I'm sure they use them in the same way. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the genius of, of Chef Wiley was to be able to coax out of those things that uh, people wouldn't even think of in their wildest dreams. You know, why would I do, why would I do that? But, mm. uh, you know, that kind of reaction. But I think in, in many respects, it's, it's, our cuisine is it's much more subdued. Mm. Right. So it doesn't, it's not visible. Well, it may be visible if you know what you're looking for. Okay. Like... But we don't... You know, the servers don't go to the table and say, oh, this contains xanthan gum, methyl cellulose, <laughs> and high and low acyl gel. Mm. I, I don't... I don't think diners want to hear that. Mm. But uh, I think it's 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 there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the applications, um, you know, are, are very uh, creative. But uh, we... Maybe in the total picture, they don't pick out that element. They, mm. They're more uh, enamored, hopefully, with how it tastes, the flavor, mm. that kind of thing. Right. Well, the dandan gum, for instance, it's a very efficient way and no flavor. It doesn't hurt, hurt anything of the ingredients. So Go to the supermarket and look at your condiment aisle. It's in every mm. single one of them. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I asked this question because, uh, you know, like natural or traditional versus scientific and then people may have some problems with that but like maybe but i've had recently i've had a couple of japanese chefs reach out to me and mm. ask me um to, to, to just talk about it with them and you know give them some you know very rudimentary mm. instruction because okay. i think they're very interested in it mm. well are they japanese chefs in japan japanese chefs in new york okay interesting Right. And uh, actually, I know a group of uh, top kaiseki chefs, actually including Murata-san of Kikunoi. Um, he, they work closely with uh, Kyoto University about mm. the food science to analyze, like, you know, how can you make kombu more flavorful? You take out of extract, out of the same kombu based on the water, you know, the mineral level, that kind of thing, for instance. So... I think science is becoming naturally into traditional cuisine, too. Well, I think understanding the science, and this is probably a quote from Wiley Dufresne, but understanding that the science behind cooking will make your cooking better. Mm. You know, understanding the reason why you're doing something or the purpose for it mm. um, drives the next step or mm. of what you're going to do. Right. Um, without understanding that, I think you're, 
you're sort of flailing away blindly in the night. Mm. Uh, but if you understand what the science is behind the application of time um, and heat and temperature to something, um, you're going to be a much better cook. Right. Yeah. For instance, uh, um, I know Chef uh, you know, Seiji uh, Yamamoto at the Ryugen in Tokyo, and uh, he uh, city-scanned Hamo like a eel-like fish because if you cut ham hamo because it's so bony and you just need a uh, experience to make it not too bony and yeah. then he he ct scan it and then now he knows the structure of the bones so you don't have to be completely spending 30 years to be able to cut perfect uh, hamo amazing right so anyways um now on your beverage menu you have seven sakes and three shochu and uh, versus 19 kinds of wine, which I found. So um, that's a big proportion on the menus. So what is appeal? What does appeal to you about sake compared to wine, beer? Uh, uh, we have almost as many sakes as we have wine. Mm-hmm. We just don't put all of them on the list. Oh, wow. We kind of rotate them through. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a beverage pairing that we've been doing for several years now that um, offers wine, sake, and sometimes shochu. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of uh, uh, introduces a diner through the beverage pairing uh, to sake. And, you know, the most common thing we hear is, oh, my gosh, I didn't know sake could be um, mm. consumed cold. Um, you know, so we're, we're, we're in the – when we opened, it was very hard to sell sake and shochu. Wow. Uh, it's becoming much easier now, and I think folks are – Particularly if you look at uh, ramen nights, we feature a couple of sakes that we think would pair well with the ramen. Uh, and you, we usually sell out of the sake because mm. people are being directed to it and trusting us to offer a sake that will, will com- you know, complement whatever they're eating. So it's been very well received. Mm. Um, I've had some amazing people help me. Um, Yasuyuki Suzuki is the mm-hmm. manager for Barseki. His sake sommelier is amazing. Mm-hmm. I was... Uh, trained by uh, um, Tim Sullivan of mm-hmm. Urban Sake. Right. Um, and Stephen Lyman uh, is probably, I, mean, like, I don't know where he learns all of this uh, stuff about shochu, but it's an amazing experience right. to be around the mall mm-hmm. to hear, uh, you know, and you look at what's been done by others as well, particularly Chris Johnson mm-hmm. and uh, John Gauntner. I mean, it's amazing when you consider that there's probably what one book on shochu by Chris Pellegrini and you know there's very few uh, sake mm. uh, English uh, sake guides or manuals right. um, so it's you have to look to these people otherwise uh, there's no other way to learn right. <laughs> and I heard you have a sake advisor and sommelier certification I to do. take that mission and uh, how how did you take it was it hard to take oh, it was fun we drank sake for two days okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the easier educational experiences you'll you'll have mm. uh you know with uh, tim sullivan was the uh, uh teacher of that class uh mm. with along with uh, a gentleman i think his name was toshio ueno mm-hmm. and um you know it's over the course of uh, a couple of days it's actually two separate classes um that i i think you have to pass one to get to the second level and then it involves basically understanding the brewing process, mm. uh, the types of sake, and then you have to basically test it and identify it and mm. offer notes, tasting notes. Um, so it's a, it's a very expedited um, as compared to, say, a wine psalm, 
Um, but uh, you know, it, it it's a tremendous experience if if you're interested in taking uh, uh, learning about sake. Mm. Uh, they also also offer one for shochu. Okay, so I heard that this is a organization called SSI, and uh, which is based in Japan, and to promote the sake and shochu. And uh, I think the certification was made to um, create the professionals who can uh, propose, uh, offer, and sell good sake and shochu. So it sounds like you're the right person. Oh, yeah, and I love drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think uh, our listeners who are interested can uh, take the exam and get certified? Sure. I think... Um, uh the, the the program again I think is run through um, if you go to urbansake dot uh, com mm-hmm. Tim Sullivan offers the program uh, also I believe John Gauntner okay uh, was a guest a, yeah he offers offers a school as well okay or a class as well uh, yeah Tim um, Sullivan by the way he is he's like you and he's a good technology person and yeah. then converted to completely a sake expert Absolutely. an amazing talent brand ambassador I think for Hakai San yes. Um, but I also have uh, some very good friends, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Richardson out of World of Sake. Mm. They import some of the most beautiful sakes we have. Nice. Um, and, you know, so if you surround yourself with those folks and, and you're able to make the connection, uh, there's a lot of outlets for education. Mm. Um, you know, and I recommend anytime you are paying for education associated with the consumption of sake or shochu, uh, it's money well spent. Mm. Okay. All right, so it's urbansake.com. For Tim, yes. And then uh, John Gautner, I think they can find through your program. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay, so Japanese, look up uh, John Gautner. If you want an introduction, I think a great one also is um, uh, Bar Seki, uh, the new uh, Seki restaurant up on 48th Street. Mm -hmm. Um, Yasu-san. Yasu and um, Rick, Rick Zuad, mm-hmm. they put together mm-hmm. basically a sake uh, club on Mondays. Okay. And it's an incredible, if, if, you've, if you want great education, Yasu-san mm-hmm. is an amazing teacher. Okay. Uh, passionate and really delicious sake. Mm. I recommend it. Okay, sounds good. So it's on 23rd uh, it's Street? 48th. For, oh, 48th Street. 48th and 9th. Okay. Between Wait. 8th and 9th, I believe. Right. So it's in Sushi Seki. There's a bar, Seki? It's the brand new, uh, I think they call it Bar Seki. Okay. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. And uh, so I heard uh, you starched uh, or cooked with uh, the Sushi Master in Tokyo recently. Uh, two so, years ago. Oh, two years ago. Yeah. Okay. So what is what was the experience? Uh, it convinced me that I'm too old to be a sushi a sushi chef, <laughs> <laughs> or at least train with a sushi a sushi chef. Um, two years ago, I was fortunate enough to work uh, for a month uh, with the master of my friend uh, Shimizu Masato mm, from, uh, from formerly at the uh, Fifteen East, yeah. and uh, he arranged for me to stage there. Mm. Um, basically, you're up at four thirty in the morning. You're at Skiji Market, then you're back cleaning fish, and you're doing lunch service. Mm. And then uh, you get an hour and a half to sleep, and then you go back and you do it all over again for dinner. And at midnight, you're mopping out the kitchen, and you go to sleep, and you're up at 4.30. <laughs> mm. it's, a, it's a grueling, grueling life. But I think it gives you an appreciation of what actually goes into um, the training of a sushi master. Mm. Uh, I mean, only a month, but... Uh, Man, it was the hardest work I'd done. 
Okay, right. Um, so Masato Shimizu was really known for great being a great sushi chef, and he is now in Thailand. But um, I interviewed him earlier, like a couple of years ago, and he said uh, he was under the master, I think, uh, Rikyo Kugo. Rikyo, Rikyo Sugo? Yeah, Ku- Kugo. Yeah, Kugo. Kugo. And uh, Dan- they called him Dana san. Okay. Yeah, so he was a real craftsman, and uh, he said, you know, work as a, uh, the management and just respect everything, clean everything perfectly, and learn from everything, even clothing of your clients. And that's the attitude of improvement. That about sums it up better mm-hmm. than I could have. I mean, right. it's it's a it's a um, um, it's a pursuit of of perfection, uh, cleanliness, hospitality that mm-hmm. is um, unparalleled. The restaurant, by the way, was uh, Sukaroku, right? In Tokyo Kamedo. Kamedo, right? It's a downtown Tokyo, so it's Skeroku. Okay. Right. Okay. So, um, so I heard that uh, you're working on a new restaurant concept. Yeah, and. Uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to open uh, A and B uh, Food Co. Uh, at nine twenty Alton Road, in Miami Beach. Mm. Um, it is uh, with a gentleman. We're partnering with a gentleman named Tatanka Guerrero. Um, very uh, energetic, passionate guy. Uh, was in the nightlife um, scene in Miami, in New York, in Tokyo, and we're going to put together uh, a restaurant and and. Uh, club, uh, I should say, bar experience that's going to take a lot of the elements from the Crimson Sparrow and, and mm. uh, translate it into uh, a South Florida restaurant. Mm, including um, some Japanese elements? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, it, again, will be a uh, revisited or revised uh, or reformulated kaiseki experience, mm. and we'll have a significant number of sakes and shochus available mm. um, through a lot of the folks we're, we're able to use here. Wow. Um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the vendors don't offer a lot of the sakes we have in New York here in Florida. Mm. So right there you can know that the uh, appreciation and education level in New York for sake and shochu is mm. far, far outpaced uh, Florida, but we're going to do what we can. Mm. It'll be a lot of fun. Right. So and we have it. some other projects too where uh, Ryan and I are working on, so mm. it's going to be a very exciting 2016. Oh, wow. Great. You're going to be even busier. Busier, less time for drinking, uh, <laughs> Kiko san. You can always <laughs> find time to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, all right. So, thank you for joining us today, John. So please keep us posted and uh, absolutely. Right. So let us know when they open the restaurant in Miami. Will do. I think it's going to be in mid-February. Okay, great. All right. So uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about John's restaurant, please visit thecrimsonsparrow.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And by the way, we just launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page. Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Podcasts. Today's show was made possible by Oya Restaurants, and our engineer is uh, Liz Smith. Please stay warm, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. 
You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.